Yes, Pastor Dave blessed me and told me you get to pick up where I left off in the disciples' prayer there, and you get two weeks to preach on one verse. And I said, thank you, David. So a mom was listening to her child pray, and she kept hearing the name Howard over and over again. And she said, why do I keep hearing the name Howard? And, she's, and the child said, well, that's God's name. Our Father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that as we were looking at this prayer because people pray for a lot of things, and a lot of times we don't understand what we're praying for. As I looked at some statistics this week, I thought I would give you a little insight as to, as we survey all of you and understand sort of how folks pray, what they pray for, I, I just have some statistics to run by you here. Most people pray for things like health, safety, jobs, success. Whether those things are valid or not, I don't know. 82% said they ask for health or success for a child or family member when they pray. 82% believe that God does not play favorites in answering prayers. 79% said God answers prayer for healing someone with an incurable disease. 75% asked for strength to overcome personal weakness. 73% answered that prayers for help in finding a job are answered. And on the lighter side, 51% agreed that God doesn't answer prayers to win sporting events. 36% never prayed for financial or career success at all. I give those statistics to you just to say, as we look at this model prayer in Matthew, it's a reality to me that very few people including us, pray for what is in this prayer. When you think about it, how many of us pray that God's name would be hallowed in this earth? How many of us pray that God's kingdom would come? How many of us pray that God's will would be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven? How many, how many of us really pray those things? And yet this is exactly what Christ has told us to pray for. Why don't you turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 6, verses 7 to 15, and let me read through that passage. Pastor David started us on it last week, and I, as I said, am going to be preaching the next couple of weeks here on verse 10. If you have a pew Bible there in front of you, it's page 962. So if you can find your way there. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 9. Jesus said, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many are not sure whether or not these next Words are part of the prayer, but I'll read them anyway. For, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, I'm just going to kind of review and give you a little background on this prayer, as Pastor David did last week, just to kind of set our context here. Uh, the instruction here in this prayer is to pray according to this model in the present tense, uh, which means that these concerns are to regularly accompany our communion with God in prayer. It's continual. It's active. Uh, the model prayer is comprised of six petitions. You probably see that as you read through there. Uh, two groupings. The first grouping, verses 9 and 10, are directed to God to see God's glory displayed throughout the earth. Uh, you see that last phrase there, on earth as it is in heaven. So the prayer looks for God to take action, not for worshipers to bring the kingdom uh, down by their own efforts. It's, it's looking for God to bring the kingdom. Uh, three requests uh, concern God's name, uh, God's kingdom, and God's will. 
It's fairly plain. The second grouping concerns the disciples' need for God to guard them until Messiah's kingdom comes to earth. So guarding, protecting, in particular, the requests concern physical provision, uh, the need for forgiveness, and deliverance from temptation. You see that verses 11 to 15. Now, Jesus does not include all aspects of biblical prayer in this, uh, in this model, so this does not exhaust the Bible's teaching on what we are supposed to pray for. This is just a focused model of prayer in light of God's coming kingdom. That's the point. And by implication and direct statement, our role in relation to that great event is what we are to pray for. I wanted to put this up here for you, a literal rendering of verses 9 and 10. We're going to be looking at that this morning. He says, pray then, and I put the word wooden because this is like, if you were to word for word directly translate from the Greek, this is what it would look like. So therefore, pray y'all, if I could say it that way, Father of us, the one in the heavens. I wanted you to see that because I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Father of us, the one in the heavens, let it be made holy or hallowed the name of you. Let it come the kingdom of you, and let it come about the will of you. As in heaven, also on earth. That's, that's how the prayer literally reads. And what I, why I wanted you to see that is that the disciples are supposed to, they're supposed to pray to God who resides in heaven. That's how they're describing God. He's God, the one in the heavens. And, and, and what they're saying is, what's occurring up there, we want you to bring it down here. Okay? What's occurring in the heavenly realm, we want you to bring it here. Uh, this last phrase, uh, as in heaven, also on earth, uh, most commentators agree that it, it is not just regarding God's will, the last statement, it is regarding all three of the requests. You see that? So it's praying that God's name would be hallowed here on earth. It's praying that his kingdom would come. And it's praying that his will would be done all down here as it is up there. Okay, that's the idea. Uh, Bill Thrasher said this. uh, I think it's good. Prayer is not attempting to get our will done in heaven, but his will done on earth. That's the point. That's the point. We want what's going on up there to come down here. We want God's name to be glorified. Uh, last week, Pastor David discussed the first of the three petitions, as I said, that God's name would be hallowed. And this morning, we're going to examine the second petition so that we might pray and prioritize our lives in accordance with its divine perspective. Uh, this is about prayer. I know we're going to talk about the kingdom this morning, but the only reason I'm talking about the kingdom is so it can inform your prayer life. So we're going to talk a lot about the kingdom. And what in the world are we asking for when we utter the words, Father, let thy kingdom come? What are we asking for? We don't even know. Uh, It entails so much, and it's so broad, that we need to sort of define it, narrow it down, and figure out what in the world are we asking for when we pray that prayer. And in order to answer the question, we need to determine which kingdom Christ was talking about in particular, right? Just a word about kingdoms in general. A kingdom always has three components. First, it has a ruler, right? It's got to have a ruler or it's not a kingdom, It's got to have a realm of subjects to rule. You can't have a king sitting on a throne with no subjects. And the actual exercise of the function of rulership. Those three things are what make up a kingdom. So with that in mind, let's understand that there's three kingdoms that we need to talk about this morning. And the first one is God's universal kingdom. And what is that? Well, we need to understand that to be the created realm. This is all of God's creation, everything, all of the created realm, which is under the providential rule of God. God rules from the heavens on his throne, which is in heaven, and he rules over all of his creation. It exists without interruption. It has existed throughout all time. God the Father, with Jesus Christ at his right hand, currently rule over this kingdom. Now, The important distinction, I'm going to say this over and over again, 
their throne is located in the heavens. Their throne is not here on earth. There's a lot of confusion about this when people start talking about end-time scenarios and whether the kingdom is here now or not. The kingdom can't be here because the throne of David has not been reestablished and there's no king present. The king cannot reign on the throne which is in our hearts uh, and over our lives, and it's not a allegorical sort of throne. We're talking about a throne that exists in the heavens that Christ and God sit on, and from there they rule over all of creation. Uh, even Satan's rule, if I could say it this way, even Satan's rule, he is the prince of the power of the air of this world, right? Even that rule is subject to God's rule over his entire kingdom. It is not as the pagans would have you believe that good and evil are balanced and that there's this this force in the universe that's struggling for power. No, God is sovereign over it all. And he, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. God subjects him to his rule. So God, that's God's universal kingdom. Uh, secondly, I want you to see in Scripture there is a mediatorial kingdom. And I know that's a big word. What in the world does that mean? But it's the rule of God through a divinely chosen representative. Uh, That is, uh, a man who not only speaks and acts for God, but represents the people before God. There's a mediator. There's a mediator. Now, this mediatorial ruler is always a member of the human race. Always. So that's why Christ is both God and man. That qualifies him to sit on that throne. Uh, Moses, if you read your Old Testament, Moses was a steward of that kingdom. A steward, if I could say it that way. He was the steward of Gondor. He wasn't the rightful heir to the throne, but he was a steward of the kingdom. He was the ruler of the kingdom in place of the king while the king was absent. Jacob predicted the arrival of the king, and through the, he predicted the line through whom the king would come, right? Genesis 49.10. Why don't you turn there? Let's look at this. So this is Jacob's parting blessing. And this is page 55 in that pew Bible if you're using that. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Well, what scepter? Well, the scepter that the coming king would hold in his hand, right? Uh, the scepter would not depart from Judah, that was his fourth-born son, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. His tie, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now that last phrase is interesting, and I want you to see that for just a moment. Uh, If you look at the margin note on his eyes are dull from wine, it says his eyes are darker than wine. That means he's he's filled up with so much wine that you can see it through his eyes. That's the idea. And his teeth, uh, he has a different kind of teeth whitening program here. His teeth are whitened from milk. He has so much milk, so much in abundance, that his teeth are glowing white. That's the idea. And what this is talking about is the abundance that's going to come in the millennial kingdom. This is far-reaching, looking forward, way down through the line of Judah to the time when the millennial kingdom would be here and, and the blessings would be so great that, that, that it's hard to even put them into words. Now, we know that David, the descendant of Judah, and, his, and David's descendants ruled over this kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom, uh, until it was stripped from them temporarily by Babylon, right? 586. The Babylonian captivity, since then, this kingdom has been subjected to the rule of pagan kingdoms. Uh, They are now providentially under those other kingdoms. We had Greece, we had Rome, right? We had Persia, we had Babylon. God has subjected his mediatorial kingdom now to the rule of these other kingdom empires. All the while, he is providentially 
preserving his kingdom and caring for it until such time as the rightful heir would come back and assume the throne. That leads us to the third kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And this we can describe as Messiah's reign here on earth. This is when the, the yet future, the thousand-year reign of the mediatorial kingdom, which will be under the rule of the rightful heir, the rightful heir, Jesus Christ. When he comes and ascends the throne on earth from the line of David, he will rule over this earth from the mediatorial kingdom. It was predicted in the Old Testament, but its duration was more specified in the book of Revelation. We knew the kingdom was coming, and we knew Messiah would reign on it. We just didn't know how long the reign would be, and John nailed that down for us in the book of Revelation. It's a thousand years. It's a thousand years. When the last rebellion of man is finally crushed by this king, the universal kingdom and the mediatorial kingdom will merge together and that will be literally heaven on earth. Is what we're praying for. Is what we're praying for. From there, it will bleed off into eternity. So the primary focus of the prayer is for this This coming millennial kingdom, which will be merged into the universal kingdom and then bleed off into eternity beyond that. We're praying for what's happening up there for God's rule to happen down here in the mediatorial kingdom. Why don't you turn to Revelation 20 and let me just show you this. You know, when you start talking about the kingdom... It gets complicated. There's no doubt about it. It just gets complicated. And we know that what happens first is that Satan is going to be bound so that we know that there will be peace in the kingdom for a thousand years. Satan is not bound now. I don't care what people say. You can't go around binding Satan over and over again. It doesn't happen. Satan is not bound. He's the ruler of this world. He will be bound when the Messiah returns. Then I saw an angel coming, from, coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be re- released for a short time. Uh, then I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's us. That's usins, if I could say it that way. We will reign with Christ for a thousand years. We are blessed because we get to take part in the first resurrection, not the second that is a tremendous blessing indeed. So let me, let me just kind of summarize the kingdom idea here. In other words, there's a universal kingdom which is over the earth. Notice the preposition there, over the earth. And the mediatorial kingdom which is on earth. You understand the distinction there? The first refers to the extent of God's rule. The second refers to the method of his rule. Does that make sense? Now, the interesting thing about this as you look at this is that Christ is asking his disciples to pray for this while he's still with them. Now, think about that. The king is sitting in their midst, and he's saying, pray for the kingdom to come. He knew it wasn't going to come with his first coming. He knew it was going to come with his second coming. So he's asking them to look forward to the time 
of his second coming when he will establish that kingdom. And this is important, and I make this point because uh, many people do a lot of violence to the Scriptures now, and they suggest, as I said, that Christ is reigning on the throne of David now. It's just that the throne of David has been relocated from earth to heaven. And that's what they do. They allegorize the Scriptures in order to make it fit their system of theology. The throne has been relocated. Uh, Some believe that the kingdom should not be taken literally, that it's not a literal physical reign here on earth, but somehow Christ is reigning in the hearts and minds of his people now. There's no literal kingdom coming, no literal throne coming. It's the only problem with that. I can think of a lot of problems. But let me just say this. The problem that comes to mind is that Christ himself understood the kingdom to be future and literal, right? As did the apostles. You look at the end of the book of Acts, the last couple of verses there, it says the apostle Paul is in his locked quarters in Rome and he's continuing to preach the kingdom of God. He didn't think it was there yet. He knew it was yet future. Everybody knows it's yet future. It's not here now. It's not here now. Now, during Christ's earthly ministry, the reason he could say the kingdom of God was at hand is what? He was sitting there. The king was there. So the kingdom, if I could say it this way, was present because he was present in their midst. But if there's no king, what? There's no kingdom. No king, no kingdom. There needs to be a ruler, subjects to rule, and the exercise of rulership. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are essentially praying for the return of Christ and all that his return entails. It's a big prayer. It's only half of one verse, but it's a big prayer. Now, there's two stages of the coming kingdom. And this is what I have on your handout there if you've grabbed one of those. There's two stages of the coming kingdom which are separated by a seven-year period known as the tribulation. There's two stages of the arrival of the kingdom. And we want to understand these so that we can pray more effectively and live with an expectancy for what the future holds, right? So the, this, again, this is an eschatological. Eschatological just means end times. This is an eschatological, um, if I could say it this way, sort of an understanding of what the end times hold. But the bottom line is I'm, I'm really not preaching to you about eschatology so much as I am telling you this is how you need to pray. This is what we need to pray for, for what's coming, right? So the first stage of the kingdom coming is the rapture and the resurrection of the church. We're in the last days now, but what begins the second coming of Christ and, and everything that follows, if I could say it that way, the next event on the prophetic calendar is not the second coming of Christ to establish the kingdom, but the coming of Christ to receive the church. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that today and they blend the two together and it gets them all screwed up. So the next event on the calendar, uh, you pull out your phone and look at it, is, is Christ coming for the church. It's, it's what theologians or what we in the church call the rapture, right? It's the rapture, uh, more accurately the snatching away, the snatching away of the church. Uh, which is preceded by the resurrection. It's preceded by the resurrection of those who have died in Christ. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, why don't you, why don't you turn there and let, let's look at this together. Let's try to piece some things together here. First Thessalonians 4.13, page 1183 in your pew Bible if you're using one. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. This is new information, by the way. 
Everybody was expecting the resurrection of the dead, but that what the church didn't understand was that there was a resurrection prior to the later resurrection. There's two resurrections, and they needed a little explanation here, okay? Uh, we want you uh, to not be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fall, excuse me, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with those words. Now, what's, what's the interesting thing here, right? Christ is coming, but he's not establishing his kingdom. He's only coming to receive his bride. This is a John 14, 1-3 passage is what this is. This is explaining the fact that Christ says, I'm going away and I'm coming back for you. Right? I'm going away to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back for you. And, and then I'm going to take you to be with me always. Uh, the idea here is that the dead in Christ will be raised first. They will meet Christ in the air and we who are alive and remain, our bodies will be translated. We won't have to experience death. We will just get glorified new bodies, and we will meet the dead in Christ and Christ in the air, and we'll go away and we'll be with him forever. We won't have to experience what's coming after that, and that's the glory of the good news of the gospel, beloved. We don't have to experience the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we have not been destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church doesn't have to undergo the wrath that is going to come upon the rest of the world. That's the blessed hope of believers. And the key to it is the doctrine of imminence, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment, but I want to turn you one other place. 1 Corinthians 15, page 1153 in your pew Bible. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 55. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom concept. Nor does the perishable inherit the, perish, the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will, we will all be changed. That's Judy's nursery verse. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We don't have to experience death. If we're alive and we remain on the earth when Christ returns, we don't have to go through the veil of death. We will just be translated and we will meet the dead in the air with Christ. And, and it's, it's glory. It's just glory. As I said, imminence or suddenness is what characterizes this stage of Christ's return. Uh, we know that the arrival of the millennial kingdom will be preceded by a time of wrath on the earth. The scriptures are plain about that. We know this. Uh, but the coming for the church is sudden. It's sudden. It's without warning. It's, it's just, it happens. The Christ returns. There's a trumpet blast. The dead in Christ rise. There's no warning. There's no time frame. Nowhere does the Bible say that that Christ is going to establish his kingdom at this time. It just says that he's going to come for his church. 
And there we will be with him always. You know, the rapture of the church fits that John 14, 1-3 statement. The, the snatching away of the church, but not the promises of Israel. You think about the promises God made to Israel. They don't fit in that John 14 statement. They don't fit in these other passages we've looked at. It has to be a different coming. The important thing to see in that is that it's, it's imminent. Imminent means it could happen any time. It could happen any moment. It could happen right now. That's the point. Why is that important for you this morning? Why is that important for us? Why do we need to know this? Well, it informs our prayers primarily. Uh, A.W. Pink, Arthur Walkington Pink, said this, If the wondrous truth that our Redeemer might return today once took firm hold on our hearts, it would revolutionize our lives and provide us with a spiritual dynamic that is incalculable in its reach and incomparable in its value. Think about that. If we could just get a hold of the idea that Christ could come today, it would change your life. It would change your life. It would change your prayer life as well. That's the material point this morning. Your prayer life, how many of you are satisfied with your prayer life? Show of hands. Not a one of you. I'm not satisfied with my prayer life. But the reality is, if we could get a hold of this truth, it would change us. It would change us significantly. We would live with expectations. We would live with hope. Uh, The pre-tribulational rapture of the church is not a theological doctrine so much as it is a blessed hope. And it should change us. I mean, you think about the New Testament, all the exhortations for sobriety, for watchfulness, for faithfulness, for spiritual conduct. Why all those exhortations? Because Christ could come at any moment. And you better be ready. You better be ready. Since this is ultimately about prayer and how we live our lives, we can pray with these things in mind. We can pray with these things in mind. Lord, help me to live with the expectancy of Christ's return at any moment. Lord, help me to live sober-minded and not not be drugged by the things of this world. Lord, help me to long to see my Savior face to face. Lord, help me to live in in purity so that when my Savior comes without warning, I won't be ashamed. I won't be ashamed. I won't have to shrink back in shame. Beloved, I've said this to you before. We don't we don't necessarily live trying to pay God back for what he's done for us on the cross. I'm grateful for that. But for a believer, we pray for what's coming in the future. We can't do anything about this. You can't muster enough gratitude to pay God back. But what you can live with is the hope and expectation of seeing Christ face to face. That's what motivates change. The seven-year intervening period of time in between is what we call the Great Tribulation. Right? It's coming. It's what I'm calling the retribution against the wicked. So here's the thing. When you pray for the kingdom to come, what you're praying for is not just deliverance for yourself, You're praying for judgment upon the wicked. Because when Christ comes, it's good news for us. It's bad news for them. It's bad news. The gap in between the two stages of the kingdom's arrival is the Daniel's 70th week. If you go to Daniel 9, I, I won't take the time to go there this morning, but if you look at Daniel's prophecy... It says that after 69 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. That was the crucifixion. 
Uh, We know that that was historically fulfilled. But that 70th week from Daniel has never been fulfilled. There's been no fulfillment. Uh, A prophetic week, just so you know, is seven years. Hence, the seven-year tribulation. That 70th week has yet to be fulfilled. Now, since Daniel's prayer at the beginning of Daniel 9 is a confession on the part of Israel's sins and the interpretation of the dream that's given by the angel is regarding Israel and her sins, then the seven-year tribulation is for who? It's for Israel. It's for Israel, not the church. There is no church in the Old Testament. It's New Testament revelation. There's no church in the Old Testament. So, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is primarily for the nation of Israel to drive her to her knees in repentance. It's to refine her. It's to chasten her. It's to smelt away her dross. See, we need to read our Bibles from left to right, not right to left. We need to, what I mean by that is we don't read our New Testament back into the Old Testament and change its meaning. God promised certain things to Israel. And he's going to deliver on those promises. Otherwise, God is not a faithful God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Let me, let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 1, page 685. I'm going to pick it up in 24. I'm going to back up a little bit. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. When do you think he'll do that? The tribulation period. And I will also turn my hand against you, talking to Israel, And I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. Then, only after that, then I will restore your judges as as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Stop right there. So you can see God is serious about the fact that he's going to purify the nation of Israel before they can enter the kingdom, before they can be called the righteous city. Uh, The blessed thing about being in the church is we get a restored relationship without having to get spanked first. But for Israel, that is not the case. They are going to have to be stripped of everything and purified and have the dross removed in order to enter the kingdom. Now this time, this this intervening period, this tribulation period, it's also going to be paybacks for those that are persecuting the church. You can look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for this. We'll just look at verses 6 to 10 here. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. There's paybacks. Yes, it's primarily for Israel, but there's paybacks for the rest of the unbelieving world who has persecuted the church of God. And at the same time, the church is being whisked away to glory Wrath will begin to be poured out upon the persecutors of the church and the rest 
of the unbelieving world. And instead of heaven on earth, it's going to be more like hell on earth. So how do we pray? How do we pray for something like that? (laughs) Well, understand that God is not just a God of love. He has other attributes besides love, right? Justice. Justice. Wrath. Uh, Mercy would not make sense at all if those other attributes were not there. So, Pray for God's righteous judgment to befall the wicked when Christ returns. You can pray with thanksgiving that that we do not have to face this coming tribulation period. We will be spared either by being raised from the dead or translated into glory. We can pray that Christ will execute justice when He comes. We can beseech God for His mercy for those who have not yet placed faith in Christ. We can express trust that God will be faithful to His promises to deliver us. I mean, there's lots to pray for in light of what's coming. I think this what this does for me is this expands my view of my prayer life a little bit, right? It's not just my little bubble of my personal needs. There's a lot more going on out there as well as what's coming in the future that we could be praying for. This, this should expand, uh, open up our minds to a whole new realm to be praying for. Finally, let me... Let me say the second stage of the kingdom coming is what I'm calling the return of the rightful heir. It's the return of the king. So after the seven-year tribulation is over with, uh, the king and the rightful heir to the mediatorial throne will return and he will ascend to his throne. Yay. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Yay. When he does return... And again, I don't have time to go into depth uh, that I would love to on each one of these topics. Each one of these is a series in itself. Uh, We're keeping it above the treetops here because the focus is on prayer. But five major events will occur in connection with Christ's return. Five major, major events. These are just the high points. This is what is known biblically as the second coming of Christ. As I said, there's, there's... There's two comings, if I could say it that way, but the first one is really not the establishment of the kingdom. It's only only a part. The second coming is the second coming to establish the kingdom. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.1 you could reference here. I won't turn you there. So the first major event is what I'm going to say is the restoration and repentance of the nation of Israel. Uh, Repentance and restoration of the nation of Israel. Zechariah 12.10. Why, why don't you turn there? We'll look at this passage. That's where all the pages are stuck together in your Old Testament. Zechariah 12.10, page 948 in those pew Bibles. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Interesting, huh? They'll look on me whom they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Uh, The nation of Israel, uh, God is going to pour out his spirit upon the nation. Uh, They will weep over what they have done to their Messiah and their Savior and their rightful King. And, and their, their regeneration from the Spirit being poured out on them will lead them to repentance and their ability to receive the kingdom. It's, it's a major milestone for the nation of Israel. Finally, uh, Israel will have come through the tribulation. They will have been refined. They'll be driven to their knees. And God will pour out His Spirit on them and they will be able to receive the kingdom. 
Second, the resurrection of the saints and the martyrs. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Daniel 12, 1 to 2, Isaiah 26, 19 to 21. At the close of the tribulation, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs will be raised in order to inherit the kingdom, what was promised to them. They get to participate in the kingdom of God on earth for a thousand years and reign with Christ, and so they will be raised from the dead at that time. Third, removal of the rebels, Matthew 24:40. You don't have to turn there. Uh, this is just, uh, I think a lot of people, the reason I put this in here, a lot of people are confused about this. They think this is the rapture. It's not. Uh, but, you know, the passage, two in the field, one's taken away, one's left behind, right? Uh, the reality is the one taken away is he's being taken away to judgment. The one that remains gets to enter the kingdom. Uh, if you look at the chronology of what Christ is talking about there, uh, those who have not embraced Christ at the end of the tribulation, they will be taken away to judgment. That's what that passage is describing. Fourth, the restraint of Satan. We looked at that, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. You don't have to turn there again. But as I said, Satan will be bound for a thousand years so that righteousness will reign and prevail on the earth in the kingdom. And then what I'm calling the reign of righteousness, uh, Zechariah 14, if you're still there, look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. Now remember what we started with last week. Hallowed be thy name, right? So here it is. His name, the only one. His kingdom, the only one. The righteous reign for a thousand years. So after the final rebellion is is put down at the end of those thousand years, we read about that in Revelation 20, Satan will be released for a moment, briefly, just for a brief rebellion. Uh, Then the heavens and earth will be renewed. Uh, Jerusalem which I believe, I believe the earth will be renewed. I, I don't believe it's all going to be destroyed and recreated. It, it's going to be renewed. Uh, hence, the only way we can get back to the Garden of Eden, in a sense, at the end of the book of Revelation, that, that the Jerusalem, uh, rather than it coming on a cloud from the heavens, I think the idea here, the language better describes that it has its origin from heaven. It has its origin from heaven. New Jerusalem renewed heavens and earth, the kingdom's still here, it all bleeds off into eternity. Praise God, right? That's what's coming. Praise God. So this prayer that we're praying now, as in heaven, so on earth, it'll be a reality. It'll be a reality. What's happening up there will then be happening down here. Praise God. It will be heaven on earth. Now, knowing what will occur and the timing of those events helps us to know how to pray in accordance with the divine plan, right? It, we have the itinerary, if I could say it that way. We have the itinerary. We know the schedule. Uh, we can and should pray for God's righteous reign to come to earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Uh, old Puritan, I don't have his name, but he wrote down this prayer, and I, I wanted to be practical about this. I don't want to just tell you to pray for these things. I, wanna, I want you to hear what a prayer for these things would sound like, okay? So why don't, why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. Let me, let me read through this prayer and just see if you can get your mind around this stuff. O Son of God and Son of Man, you were incarnate, did suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Your departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Your word promises, your sacraments show your death until you come again. That day is no horror to me, For your death has redeemed me 
Your Spirit fills me. Your love animates me. Your Word governs me. I have trusted you, and you have not betrayed my trust. Waited for you, and not waited in vain. You will come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal immortality, this natural body, a spiritual body, this dishonored body, a glorious body, this weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in your promises as I shall do in their performance, for the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing you, of disobeying your word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for your elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen. Beloved, these these truths should translate for us into, into praise, thanksgiving, expectancy, hope, joy. Christ is coming. Christ is coming, and glory is coming with Him. The kingdom is coming with Him. Maranatha, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and bring your kingdom with you. That should be our prayer. God bless you this morning as we go in fellowship and faith.